Hi, and thanks for tuning in to our first uh, real episode of Design Doc. Today, I'm talking with uh, Matt Balmer. He's a software engineer at LinkedIn and a longtime friend and mentor to myself. Um, he's worked on an awesome project that I've been using for several months now, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, so Matt uh, is on the line. Um, can you go ahead and introduce yourself and maybe tell us about uh, yourself, how long you've been doing software development, and what you're currently working on. Yeah. Hi, Brad. Uh, happy to be here, trying out the the first episode of this podcast. Um, so, yeah, like you said, I work currently at LinkedIn as a software engineer, um, and the, it's a bit of a muddy answer to say how long I've been doing it. So I started in various capacities toying around with, with stuff like almost 15 years ago. I was with like Microsoft, uh, I think it was front page, stuff like that. And then eventually you, you get around to learning how the websites actually work, not just like the HTML. So that was learning the basics of like PHP and JavaScript. Um, that was maybe 10 or 11 years ago, something like that. Um, but in a professional capacity, I've been either freelancing uh, at an internship or working full time for about six or seven years. Um, and then in addition to that, I have a lot of side projects that I work on just for fun. Cool. And I think the side project we're going to talk about today is called Dungeon Pad, right? That's right. Awesome. So building Dungeon Pad, what's, what's the team look like? Are you building this on your own? Do you have help? Have you had a designer to work with, copywriter, anything like that? So far, it's just been myself. Um, it's a bit of a, an amorphous goal. Uh, so I haven't tried to bring on anyone else just because at this point in the project, it feels like if I tried to tell someone, Hey, can you help me do X? Then a couple months later that might turn into Y. And I don't want to have to deal with that back and forth and dragging someone else into that until I really kind of lock down what I want this to be. Um, so as, as far as like working alone, what I try to do at least is cordon off different sections of the app, um, into different domains. Uh, and, and work on those like one step at a time. So there's not really a team, but I have to switch between different kinds of hats. So I'll do like the um, the database stuff and just like work on that for a bit or work on like the UI stuff. And then I'll just try to work on that for a bit and put that, that UI hat on. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of filling the the roles of the various team members. But like I said, once once I get it nailed down, probably try to bring in some more people to help me out. It's nice to hear that uh, I'm not the only one that has that issue of um, having a plan for X and kind of starting to build it and then seeing X turn into Y. I feel like I've had that happen on so many of my projects, and it's really nice to hear that someone else goes through it too. Definitely. I have a bit of a background with Matt. We've known each other for a long time. Um, and if there's one thing I've learned over the years, it's that this guy loves some JavaScript. So I, I reckon you're probably using Node. Is that correct? Definitely. Why did you choose Node for your technology? Is it just something that you were comfortable with and you knew that comfort would help you build quickly? Any real benefit to Node over any other technology? Mainly what you said about the comfort level. Uh, like you said, I love JavaScript. I'm very comfortable with it. So I can work quickly and change from X to Y if that needs to happen very quickly. Um, in addition to that, I have a ton of projects that are written in JavaScript. So if I need to go borrow pieces from something I've done earlier, be like, oh, I, I think I remember how to do this. I've done it earlier. I don't know exactly. It's easy to find that project and copy, paste, modify the code if that needs to happen or just use it as a reference. Um, 
A couple other reasons why I would choose JavaScript is I'm, I'm really intrigued by the idea of sharing a code base across multiple um, clients or servers. So, you know, you've got like React Native is kind of an example of that. You can take the same code base and use it for the web, use it for Android or iOS or whatever, or at least parts of it you can reuse. Um, but I enjoy taking that step or that idea to the server client relationship. So I have shared uh, folders of code or like a, a library, if you want, um, where some of like the core application logic can be. Uh, and maybe for this current project, it's not super relevant, but if there's any sort of like validations that need to happen where it might be super relevant, where I have in the other side projects or like, are like video games. If you want to try to write like a web-based game, you'll need validation on the server side so that people don't cheat, but also you want that validation on the client side so that you can accurately inform your users if they're trying to make an invalid move or something like that. Um, and that's like a very uh, obvious, or not obvious, but clear example of how that might benefit. But there are other smaller ways where that, that relationship and having that shared code base can um, help out in all kinds of projects. So that's one reason I like to, to use JavaScript. Um, that's it. I mean, it, would I recommend it to someone? I, definitely, it's an option to consider. It depends on what your needs are. For like a small project you're starting out with, I definitely recommend Node. I definitely want to dig into the technology a little bit more, but it just occurred to me, uh, you know what DungeonPad is. I know what DungeonPad is, but our listeners probably don't. Do you want to give uh, an elevator pitch or some, some details on to what DungeonPad is and what problems it solves? Yeah, so I'll do it two ways. First, I'll give like the product or user uh, overview, and then I'll give uh, like a technolo technological um, overview of it. So if you're, you know, from a product side, if you're a user coming into it, basically what it is is um, uh, a wiki that you and your uh, friends, coworkers, colleagues could edit in real time together. So you can have multiple entries in this wiki. It has a text editor that everyone can be editing at the same time. But the cool thing is that it does automatic linking between those entries. So where we use it, mostly where Brad and I use it and where its name is derived from, is in Dungeons & Dragons. Because it's a fantastic tool for uh, plotting out ideas that you might want to talk about later on, or documenting the progress that your party has made. And for listeners who know about Dungeons & Dragons, they can probably already see the use in this. For those that don't, basically consider it like a writing tool. So if you're writing a, a story, you have all these different plot points that are connected. You have characters, you have people, you have factions, and they all have relationships with each other. So you're going to reference them all the time. You know, like Harry, Ron, and Hermione go off on their adventure. And if someone comes new to this and they're playing Dungeons & Dragons, they're like, who the heck is Harry? Why do I care about him? Then it gives you an automatic link there and you can click into it and it's... It, you can keep going. It's like Wikipedia. You know, you have these links everywhere and you can go down the rabbit hole as much as you want. But from the writing side, it makes that easy because you don't have to go through and, and link it all up manually. Um, and in addition to that, you have, you know, your, your users, your, your party members, maybe if you are playing Dungeons and Dragons, can update their progress and they can all uh, be there in real time and edit it. And the, the DM or the GM, the, the person who's running this story for Dungeons & Dragons, has a separate mode called GM mode. And they can put in there their own like secret notes on things that the rest of the group doesn't know yet. Um, 
so they can still plot out their ideas, get it all out of their head and in somewhere that it makes sense to visualize this relationship and then view it later and then bring that information from their uh, private mode out to the user's public mode. Yeah, I've used the GM mode quite a bit and that's by far my favorite feature. It's nice to be able to have my GM notes uh, contextual to the like uh, player notes. And as we reveal information about characters or settings or things like that, I can just copy those over and paste those into the player side, which is awesome. And in the future, I'll try to stream like that. I assume at some point we'll talk about future features, but there's there's a lot planned to make that easier. Yeah, and that's that's one of the interesting things that I'd like to bring up is that this is a side project for you. It's not something you're working on full time. Um, and one of the interesting things about that is like, how do you plan? And, and I guess we'll get to this uh, a bit later, but just the idea of planning for those features, like when you, you don't have like 80 hours in a sprint uh, to like slot in work or anything. Um, but for now, I actually do have some questions about the technology. Um, I know that you're pretty big on TypeScript and we've said JavaScript a couple times. I was curious, is DungeonPad written in TypeScript, JavaScript, or some alternative? Yeah, so Dungeon Pad is just written in plain JavaScript. I uh, just whatever the browser supports, that's what it does. I think there's there's a, uh, I used to have it in just um, it, it was set up to have a gulp pipe everything into Browserify, so I wasn't running like Babel or any sort of um, uh, 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 con- converter on it. So it's just whatever the browser would support. Now it's set up with Babel, but just because of you know, there's a lot of code there already. I'm not using anything super fancy. There's no super set of JavaScript that it's it's running on. Um, I love TypeScript and would highly recommend it. But uh, in the initial stages of this project, it was a lot of fast prototyping. Um, and I wasn't super familiar with TypeScript at the time. And like I said, there's a lot of changes happening. So TypeScript's great if you have a rough idea of what your kind of data sets are going to be. Um, initially, I didn't. I think if or when I rewrite this, I probably will change it to TypeScript. I know the JavaScript uh, build pipeline has really changed over, uh, I guess, the past six or seven years um, is when I first really noticed that there even was a concept of a build pipeline. Uh, Grunt was a really popular thing that came out. Um, it seems to still be alive, so that's good. Um, but I was curious, like, what are you using Babel for in your pipeline? You mentioned Browserify. Um, are you using Babel for polyfills to make sure that all of your code is supported in all major browsers? Or what, what's the goal there? That, that's one reason. Honestly, it was just easier to set up. Um, one thing I did was learn how to use Webpack when that came out. So I've started on Gulp uh, with this project and have been using Gulp for the whole time and still do for some things. Um, but it's it's nice to be up to date with the current technology. So back when Webpack was becoming ever more popular, I decided, okay, let's convert part of this at least over to use Webpack. Um, and to be honest, it was just easier to use Babel than to try to set it up with just Browserify. And there was really no reason not to do that because, like you said, it takes care of some polyfills and things like that for you. Cool. That's a great answer. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting is you mentioned Webpack. Uh, I have a really intimate love-hate relationship with Webpack. There are certain versions that I, I basically despise, um, but Webpack, it's five, six now? One of the two. Um, whatever the latest is as of November 10th, 2019, uh, I actually really like quite a bit. So uh, I was curious, do you have any strong opinions towards Webpack? I know I uh, tweeted a meme about Webpack 
about a year ago that said webpack configs be like, and then posted a picture of hieroglyphics. Um, and actually it's probably one of my most well-received tweets, uh, except the only person that, uh, stood out was one of the creators of webpack. Uh, and he, he was asking questions about why it was that way. Uh, and he said, it'll be better in webpack four. All right. Well, that's good to hear. Um, I mean, sounds like that's already passed. Uh, I, find the configs to be confusing to read if you didn't set them up yourself and understand it all but that's easy to set up in a way that you don't have to really understand every line um and that's that's fine because that means that new people coming into projects that are like i don't really understand how to set up build pipelines or i don't really care i just want to learn how to do react or whatever can can just copy and paste uh and and that's nice um personally I prefer the mentality that Gulp has where you are piping things in to uh, like transformer functions. So you're like, here's my input, here are all the transformations I want to run on this, and then here's where it should be output to. And then it's uh, less, um, uh, what is the, help me out the word I'm looking for. It's not, uh, it's, it's declarative. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's less declarative where you can, kind of like look at it and be like, I think this config might do this thing. And it's it's more just like line to line. Like you can be like, I see clearly what is happening because of this pipe function. Um, and that also allows you to get a little bit more creative uh, with it. So like one thing I do on my project is have the uh, environment variable um, put into the code when it's, it's run client side, because there, there are some things I want to detect the environment for. Um, so you can set up in the project like a string replacer. So I'll be like this whatever string like at end or something. I want to replace that with the actual environment string. Um, so for like gulp, when I was using that, it was very easy to set up just a new transformation function on that input. And for Webpack, you had to like I had to go out and find like this particular package that did that thing. Otherwise, I'd have to write an entire new package with whatever overhead comes from writing a new uh, web back package or loader i'm not sure what that looks like because i haven't done it but to me it seems like just just a little bit of an extra step yeah i haven't tried to write a custom uh, webpack anything for that matter but um, i have a hunch it won't be super enjoyable that being said there are so many out there that it can't be terrible because people are building them so Okay, so Dungeon Pad, we can take in user input. Uh, it does a lot of um, behind-the-scenes magic to help link things up and uh, make sure that that content is easily reachable um, in, in a timely fashion, which is really helpful in the heat of uh, a game of Dungeons & Dragons or similar. But you also persist that data. That's uh, something we look back on usually at the start of each session so we can get a refresher on what happened last session. So. Um, you're using a database, I assume. Um, what database are you using? Yeah, uh, so I'll actually go through the whole tech stack just at a high level, and then I'll, I'll touch more on that. So the database is Mongo. Um, that is accessible via Express as the server, which runs on the Node platform. And then there are sockets using Socket.io set up to have the client and the server communicate. Um, that's basically it for the server. For the client side, there's actually no real framework. I kind of have a custom framework that I'm running with just because there are so many like inserts and updates and, and reorders of the DOM. And with the sockets, I just wanted it to be as light as possible. Um, 
And then I have Stylus for the CSS. I know that's not very popular anymore. SAS is kind of one out, but I like it. Uh, and then I try to use a sort of BEM, B-E-M, um, uh, mindset for the CSS. So that's kind of at a high level. But yeah, back to the database, Mongo. Um, again, the reason I chose that is just because it's very easy to prototype with. And this was not, at the beginning, a large project. It's still not a super large project. Um, that's something I may have to look at upgrading to like Postgres. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I haven't done the research yet to figure out what the best solution for this particular project is. Uh, but for now, it's on Mongo because it was easy to prototype with. That's a great answer. I keep hearing a common theme about um, speed and prototyping and, and things that uh, are comfortable. Um, and I really just want to highlight that I have a really similar mentality when it comes to personal projects. Like there's not enough time in the day to deep dive and learn like a new database, a new language, a new framework, um, all of that, and try to build something substantial. So it's it's cool to hear that someone else is going through the same thing. Yeah, especially when you're not sure what the final form of a product will take. When you're in the exploratory phase, it's better to be flexible. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So the sockets, uh, sockets are a bit of a, an interesting concept. Uh, there's something I never learned about in any of my computer science courses, and it took me a long time to actually learn how to use them on the web. Uh, do you kind of want to maybe explain what sockets are and, and why someone might use them? Sure. They're um, way easier than it sounds like. You know, you talk about everyone using sockets. It's, maybe it was just me. But at the beginning, I was like, oh, that's probably going to be a lot of work. I don't really understand how it's supposed to be used. I'm going to stay away from it. And like the best thing I did was was finally learning how to appropriately um, implement sockets in a project because it's actually insanely easy, um, especially if you use you know a pre-built library like Socket.io, which is fantastic. Um, but essentially, it's just it allows for uh, like message hub style communication between a, a server and multiple clients. Um, so you have events. Uh, that are predefined that you attach listeners to either on the server or the client. And then either of those can send an event of that event name to the other along with some data. So the library takes, can, takes care of serializing that data, establishing connections, making sure that the connections are valid, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's cool because you can pipe in a lot of other things to that. So, for example, in this project, I have um, some cookies that I want to read just to make sure that I can read who the user is that is sending an event from a Socket client and make sure that they're a valid user and that they have a valid session, etc. Um, so there's a lot of middleware you can do with Socket.io. Um, but then also you can separate these out into different rooms. So if we have multiple people on the site at the same time, uh, but on different instances, they there there won't be um, a lot of noise or like chatter unnecessarily traveling with the sockets because you just kind of segment that out at the beginning. Um, so it's a very easy concept to implement. Um, and I mean, for the rest of it, it's basically just like uh, you know you set up event handlers like you would with DOM interactions um, and go from there. Yeah, I think uh, part of the reason sockets are so intimidating is it feels like they're really easy to mess up. Um, where like HTTP requests are pretty straightforward. Like if you if you mess one up, you know that uh, 
that communication buffer terminates at some point. So, you know, you can move on and try again or do something else. But like the idea of sockets and continual streams and then then it poses questions about scalability and stuff like that. And it just becomes a, a headache. Um, but it, circling back to the personal project thing again, it's uh, I guess that's one of those good problems to have. Like if scalability becomes a concern, it means that you're at the point where, you know, maybe you can work on this full time and actually deal with it um, in that manner. Exactly. So we've covered uh, a bit about the project and the technology stacks. We're going to take um, a really quick break, and then we'll come back and talk about design patterns, um, I guess your build pipeline, and if you have any tests or anything like that, and then blockers, pain points, stuff like that that you've had working on the project. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds good. All right, and we're back. Um, so we talked about the tech stack, uh, the project that he's working on dungeon pad. Um, and we're going to dig into, I guess, a couple more high level things. Uh, I just want to mention that I'll add show notes for all of the pieces of technology that he mentioned, uh, that Matt mentioned while we were talking through the technology that he used to build dungeon pad. Um, so look for those in the show notes. If you're interested, they will definitely be there. Cool. So design patterns. Um, so this is something that, uh, in in my computer science courses in college, um, I never really understood the point of. Um, as I've grown more and more as an engineer, I definitely see some patterns. Uh, MVC is such a common one that it's hard to ignore, and often it's easy to forget that it's even a design pattern. But I was curious, like, have you used any design patterns with your project or anything um, anything you would find in a textbook? Yeah, I mean, it's impossible not to use design patterns. Like, our our job is using patterns to design or implement uh, you know, automated projects. But as far as any that you might find in a textbook, um, sure, yeah, some basic ones. Uh, probably not too many advanced ones um, because, to be honest, I never took the advanced courses. So a lot of the more advanced stuff I've either had to learn on my own or have just developed my own ways to do them, which may not be the most optimal way that you would find in a book. Um, so like to that point, essentially what this project is, is a gigantic graph editor. Um, I, I mean, so you have like the a root level entry with some associated data in this case, like the, the text that one actually sees in the, the editor. Um, but then you have child nodes and those nodes have child nodes and so on and so forth. So when you want to move a node around, then you're faced with this issue of like, how do I find any references to that node and then, you know, move them because there is automatic linking. Um, so stuff like that, or like when you download the graph and like you want to just just move one in in the editor, like how do you handle those headings on the left hand side where you actually like see the entries? How do you like shift those around and like stuff like that and like pull out the uh, the titles for them and stuff. So th there's a lot of stuff that I think would benefit from a more academic approach to graph editing uh, that I could do in this project. For the scale of it and the size of it, it's it's not very large. So it's it's fine to use some less optimal solutions. Uh, as far as like specific patterns that I can talk about, um, that that was more for like the algorithm side of things. Uh, so I don't have too much there. Okay, so. So really quick, when you say graph, just to clarify, 
uh, you don't mean like sales forecasts or bar charts or anything. Um, like uh, by graph, you mean the design pattern of graph, right? Yeah, it's a it's a data structure called a graph. So it'll have um, nodes which have child nodes that have child nodes. They, they, well, they have references to other nodes. Basically, they don't necessarily have to be child nodes. So I guess in this case, a tree is probably the more accurate data structure to describe this with. Cool. Okay, I just wanted to make sure that was clear. Yeah. Um, but since the, it's weird because you can have references to other graph nodes or tree nodes or whatever, it's just not in the exact same way you would expect them to be in a, in a normal graph or tree. It's, it's embedded within the text data. But yeah, this is a, a data structure that we talk about when we talk about the graph or the tree. Does Mongo give you any support for graphs? Um, I, I'm curious. I, I know you mentioned it was something you were comfortable with and it was a technology that allowed you to build this as a prototype quickly. But I was curious if you've investigated like um, any graph databases. Like uh, I think Datomic is a graph database. And there, there might be a couple. There for sure is a couple more, but the names are slipping me at this moment. Uh, to be honest, I haven't done too much research into that. Um, like I said, Mongo is a comfort pick, and it it is good for storing this data. But as as far as I've found, I mean, there's no, there are no features that Mongo provides that really benefit a problem I've had with this project. So either it hasn't been a problem, but Mongo provides the feature, or I have had the problem, but Mongo doesn't really tackle that problem. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, Mongo is so easy to use, um, especially from JavaScript. So I, I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah, so that's uh, the answer to kind of the algorithms part of it. There are some design patterns that I employ with the structuring of the JavaScript or like the, the way that I write it, the kind of like custom framework that I have. Um, I, I don't want to get too much into the weeds of that, but the essential like high level pattern that I go for is trying to write components that do as little as possible. Um, so they'll mount to elements, they'll find elements on the page that they care about and hook into those and attach any event listeners that they care about, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then I'll have very explicit functions that get called at various stages, various stages of the application lifecycle to add new uh, elements under those uh, nodes or to completely replace them in rare instances or to uh, pull data from them, stuff like that. Um, but the, the essential, like the top level guiding principle is to keep it simple and have the fewest number of um, interactions as possible. Awesome. Yeah, that makes sense to me. One of the things that is becoming more and more popular in our industry is the idea of continuous integration and continuous deployments. So I was curious uh, if you're willing to, um, I was hoping to dive into the build pipeline that you have. If you have any tests, uh, linting, if any of that runs at like the CI level, and how do you deploy this thing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so again, a lot of these answers, if, if we were talking about a different project I have, you would have wildly different answers. But because it's still early stages like it's i've had it around for like a year and a half but i haven't really done much with it in the past year so uh still early stages of development as far as i'm concerned so i don't have things like tests just because the the product requirements are changing so often um continuous integration is not a thing for this project it's a very manual process what i have set up as far as uh, that 
just environment helping the developer out there are you know the the build command it'll take the source files and build the output files stuff like that there's a staging server that i deploy to manually and there's a production server that i also deploy to manually so what i'm in the middle of doing now is trying to rewrite the application to be a little bit more scalable um, the production server is segmented into different instances of this app that all run 100% of the code from the server to the server dependencies to the client files, like for all, like I think 15 instances of the app that are currently running, it's, it's just copied 15 times. So as you can imagine, that fills up a droplet pretty quickly. Um, and there's a lot of processes running on that server. So that could definitely be improved because right now I have to literally copy the whole thing to set up a new instance of it. Uh, and that takes a while. So uh, I can talk more about the, the code that I'm rewriting, but essentially to answer you know, the deployment question, um, soon it will be to the point where setting up, I'll just deploy it once to the production server and then setting up a new instance is as simple as a user requesting a new instance and then it being either automatically or manually approved. And then all of a sudden it's accessible. I also have a very similar experience with uh, manual deploys, like aggressively manual deploys even. Um, so I, I find it really interesting that for something that's so prevalent, like in our, our both nine to five jobs for both of us, you can build a fully functioning product and have users using it without tests, without um, a build pipeline in place, uh, without a deploy pipeline in place. Like they're they're really nice things to have, but uh, in a world where it feels like there's so much stuff you have to do to be able to actually ship something to production, it's really not that much. Yeah, it's it's different. It feels nice, you know, refreshing. You come home from work after a day of writing tests and trying to get something deployed, and all of a sudden you're just writing features, and then and then it's out there. So that that's kind of nice from that perspective. But to have this approach in like either of our nine to five jobs would be unthinkable, right? You need those tests so that other developers don't accidentally break something or understand better the purpose of a feature that they're working on. You need that automated, you know, um, the, the linting and the, uh, the the analytics verification at like every step of the deploy process to make sure that you didn't accidentally break something on the server or between talking to other services and stuff like that. Yeah, I've always felt that um, in your own personal project, you are your own linter. Like realistically, your code style doesn't change too much throughout the time developing it, unless it's a really long project. Uh, and, and you know what, like what type of code style you want to see. So if you see something that's not there, you can fix it yourself. But the linters and and things like that really seem to be helpful um, whenever you are working with more than one person, because it lets you set a common ground in terms of code style and helps everyone conform to that. Uh, and for those who don't know what a linter is. Um, that's exactly the idea behind them. So they will uh, highlight issues with code style, not so much like uh, compiler warnings or like exceptions or anything like that. But like, did you put a semicolon at the end of the line or um, are you destructuring unused elements? Things like that. Yeah, they're very helpful. Like you said, in a team setting, they're kind of uh, a necessity. I completely. The next thing I really wanted to talk into was uh, more on a project side. This is really the part that interests me the most because uh, with personal projects, this is what I struggle with the most. Um, so you mentioned that earlier uh, in the episode that you wear many hats. And I guess we're going to talk a little bit about your project manager hat or your product owner hat or whichever of those you'd like to wear. 
Um, so I'm curious, like when you're planning your work, have, you have you clearly have a plan. Have you ran into any major blockers or anything that was like uh, that felt like it was going to be a showstopper? Hmm. Um, definitely major blockers. Showstoppers are interesting because I don't like to write off anything as a showstopper immediately. I'll try to investigate it for a few hours, see if there's a workaround before I, I declare it a showstopper. And I'm at the point now where I feel comfortable having a, a feel for like, is this thing I want to do feasible? So I'm not accustomed to running into showstoppers in the middle of a project uh, lately. Um, maybe it's just because the domains I'm working in are the ones that interest me and therefore I have a good feel for them. I'm sure that would happen if I were working in a domain that interested me less. Um, but the, the major blockers I have, the ones that I was afraid, will this be a showstopper? Um, so with authentication and subdomains, you have kind of a, a an issue, um, at least with the, the libraries I was using. It's a very difficult problem to get around. Uh, well, maybe not difficult, but it required a lot of reading to understand how that worked and to ha understand how I would be able to get around it. So for a little bit of context, the way that the dungeon pad instances work is by setting up uh, an entirely new instance on a subdomain of the top level domain. So like dungeonpad.com, uh, now you have myinstance.dungeonpad.com. And 99% of the time when websites work this way, they'll put it on a path following it. So like reddit.com slash r slash my subreddit or whatever. Um, and that's so much easier to work with because you don't have this authentication issue between the different subdomains. Um, and it's just a, a problem to try to sign in on the top level domain and then access from a subdomain or what have you. So for my project, I decided that that was something that I really wanted. I, I felt like that subdomain was going to be important for one, just like it feels like this is your own place you get to do it. But the more important one is that the way that the editor works, when you click onto uh, an entry in it, and then like a sub entry, it'll update the path in the URL with uh, to, to follow that slug. So if you have like a top level that is locations, and then under that you have one that is countries, and then under that you have the country you care about, USA, then when you click on that, the path in the browser changes to myinstance.dutchbet.com slash locations slash countries slash USA. And maybe this is just because I'm a developer, I feel comfortable editing the URL. And I want to see that URL at all times. But that was important that the URL, the path would only be your path through your editor. It wouldn't have your um, namespace in it because that it, it's fine. It's not the end of the world, but it kind of muddies it up a little bit. Um, so that's something I decided that I wanted for these reasons. But it turns out that signing in through OAuth on the top level domain and then trying to save that instance to where all of my various like libraries and plugins or whatever could access those variables from the subdomain uh, was pretty tricky to set up. So I'm using Passport to handle the, the Google OAuth stuff. And I'm using Socket.io, as we said, for the Socket stuff, uh, and Express for the, the main server routing and stuff like that. So I needed some middleware that could handle getting the result from Passport, storing it onto the Express router, 
And luckily that one was very easy to set up. There was no, no config required beyond the normal stuff. Um, but then getting it into the sockets was super difficult. Uh, so there are some settings you can do in Passport that basically enable this to propagate, but then you have to set a Passport and run it through like the, the socket middleware, and then you have to set up some other like validation steps in your own middleware. Um, and at the end of the day, like it's possible you can do it, it technically feasible, uh, but not many people do it. And so it was very tricky to try to work my way through finding that out for myself. Uh, so that was, you know, absolutely a big blocker that took a lot of research and just trying things out to see if they worked uh, before I got through it. Yeah, that sounds like it would be a total pain. Uh, and, and like you mentioned, not too many people are doing it. So I'm sure there weren't a lot of resources out there. Yeah, so there's not a lot of resources out there. Oh, and the other thing that I forgot to mention that I still have to deal with today is the fact that uh, the, the Google OAuth will return cookies and you can save them. It doesn't really work so well on localhost and the subdomains don't work at all on localhost like you can put dungeonpad.localhost whatever um and i forget exactly where the where the missing step is but this whole setup that i have working only works on either the production server or the staging server it has to actually be running on a different machine not my own so testing right now actually involves pushing all this code up to my staging server running the server from there um, and, and testing things out. I have some workarounds so I can still do some work on localhost, but if if the work involves testing how the authentication is going, right now the path is actually testing on a, uh, a staging server. That's interesting. I don't um, I don't know of like a good way around that without like trying to have a mock server or something, or better support from Google OAuth. That's yeah, that's a really interesting. Uh, blocker to have to work around it's cool that you were able to find a workaround though whether that i mean is pushing the staging and testing there that sounds actually like it was a, a total pain to work through did you run into any other major blockers or has it mostly been smooth sailing besides that one uh there have been a few others yeah so i've been working with the text editor uh that's like basically the main feature that user users will interact with when they go to the site uh, is interesting because if users in their real-time socketed environments are editing the same parts of the text editor, uh, you'll sometimes have some overlap in the deltas that get thrown around between the sockets. Um, so the way that it works is basically that a user will come to the editor, which, by the way, I'm using Quill.js for, um, which has a, a nice API that provides um, these this list of deltas that a user has entered in like a specified segment. So you set up like a debounced listener. Uh, when the user stops typing for a second, you get a list of all of the updates they've done to the editor. And then you send that list of updates along the socket to the server, which then updates the server's expectation of what the text should look like, and then sends that off to any other clients. So all your other friends or coworkers that are on that same page will now receive this list of updates that their local editors should uh, use so that they can see the latest version of that text. And as long as you're not updating the exact same part of the text in too fast of a time, it works really well. Um, but if users are updating the same line at the same time, it can get messy and you can end up with text in places where it shouldn't be or like deleted characters and weird stuff like that. And 
I've mitigated some of the issues, but it's still an ongoing problem. So I wouldn't say that one's solved, but uh, that's that's definitely a pain point that I'm working through. I'm curious how like Google Drive um, or Dropbox or anyone like that that has uh, like on online like real time collaboration engines uh, or like documents. I'm curious how they solve it. Were you able to find any like information? maybe blog posts from Google or anything about how they built that? Not yet. Um, one of the reasons is because I think I'm going to switch text editors. Uh, and so I haven't put too much effort into really 100% solving that problem yet. Because if I switch to an editor with a different API, I'll probably need some minor tweaks to how I solve that. What are you looking to switch to? I was trying uh, Draft.js for one of the things I was working on. And um, I actually asked you a while back what, what you were using, and I remember you saying Quill, and I switched immediately to Quill because I, I was trying to build something similar to what you had with DungeonPad for my editor experience, but Draft.js, I'm sure it's fantastic if you need it to be this configurable, but it felt like I was building the entire editor from scratch. Yeah, luckily Quill has a lot of stuff built into it that's great for developers, especially ones looking to do this kind of socketed approach. Um, so it's not too difficult to set up. Uh, it's a great library. Mostly, I'm, I'm kind of just window shopping, but I don't love the aesthetic of Quill. Uh, and there are some issues where if you, for example, backspace at the beginning of a line that is after uh, a bullet list, it will unbullet the last entry in that list. Just some weird interactions like that that aren't obvious and don't feel like they should work that way. Um, and also haven't checked on updates in a few months. So maybe there have been some updates to solve these problems or make it look just a little bit nicer. And there are probably uh, skins that I could throw on the editor too. But like I said, at this point, I'm just kind of window shopping to see what options are out there because this is the one that I started with and I haven't looked into other um, possibilities since then. Cool. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, keep in touch about what editor you choose, because if you find a better one, I'm also in, uh, interested in figuring out what you go with. Of course. Um, so we've already <clears throat> actually been talking for 20 minutes again. So I'm going to take another really quick break just to give us a chance to grab some water, stretch our legs, and then we'll come back and wrap this up. I promise. All right, and we're back. So we talked about blockers, pain points, um, and the build pipeline and, and tests and linting and all of that fun stuff. So we have just a couple high-level questions um, that I'm hoping to go through really quick. Uh, and we've talked about this one a little bit already, um, but I'm curious if you have any other thoughts. Uh, so I was specifically curious, if you were to restart this project, uh, what changes would you make going into it? Yeah. Um... So as we said before the break, I would probably choose a different editor. Um, but, you know, there, there's some things about this one I'm not in love with. As long as that other editor had those same API features, um, I would not want to try to write something from scratch that can determine whether a modification to the text was made from a user or from an API or can give you a list of uh, commands to update the other text editors with, like all that's built into Quill, so it's super nice. So that kind of thing is a requirement. Um, but maybe looking for a different one would be good. Focusing on multiple organizations or instances from the beginning 
would have made this a lot easier. Um, and authentication too, because right now where I'm at, I'm trying to add in authentication and support for multiple instances into a project that already exists and already kind of does its core thing. Uh, so there are a lot of times where I will change code and think, aha, this is it. I've done it. Like that's this part of the change is over. Uh, but it turns out that breaks something else in, the, in another part of the code base. And I have to go hunt that down and find it. And this, this upgrade has turned out to be a major pain to rewrite. So starting from scratch with that in mind would have really helped guide this forward. Um, and then probably I would have used React. So I've used this custom front-end framework, which has been fun. I enjoy, you know, kind of going into projects without a framework just to just just to write them in a very minimal way and see what kind of patterns emerge and just see what that looks like. I, I just think it's interesting to do. But that has slowed down development a lot. If this were in React, I think I could probably make a lot of progress in a shorter amount of time than I currently do. So these are the major changes, just, just based around, they're all, as you can see, based around trying to get more productivity out of the time I spend uh, on this project. Hearing how you went into this project uh, without a framework in mind is so unique and interesting to me. So for people unaware, there are a lot of different front-end frameworks and libraries and tools available to use. And so many of them uh, at this point have scaffolding tools. So the idea that you go into your project knowing what framework you're already going to use is really common. Um, there's a tool called Create React App, which does uh, exactly what it says. It creates a React app for you and wires everything up with Webpack and all sorts of fancy stuff. Um, I'm pretty sure Angular has like a scaffolding seed. Ember probably has a scaffolding seed, stuff like that. So it's really interesting to hear that uh, you take, like this is a, a big project and it turned out really well. And you just went into it without any of that in mind. And like you chose your own destiny instead of just following like a, a very popular trend. Yeah. And like I said, they help with development because they uh, take care of a lot of things. I think about a lot of problems that developers often run into. That's why they're popular. That's why people use them. But for me, since this is not my nine to five, this is not how I make my money. This was just something fun I wanted to do. I really enjoy the experimentation and seeing what, because the, the frameworks all have pros and cons to them, right? They have things that they're good for and things that they're less good for. So I want to figure out what this project needs to figure out which frameworks kind of best fit it or to write my own that really fits it 100% in, in the requirements that it has. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's just doubling back a, a very unique um, and in a way inspiring uh, view to take on starting a new project. Okay, so we've talked a lot about what exists and what you would do if you could, could do it all over again. But I'm uh, assuming you're not going to do it all over again. What are the next steps for your project? What, um, what are you going to work on next? Uh, well, I have considered a rewrite from the ground up. Uh, I don't know if that'll be the way that I go or not. But for now, the next step is to add organizations or instances, um, actual users, um, validation on which things you can see, which things you can edit and write. Uh, be because at the beginning, it was an experiment just for our friends. And it was great for that. You can come here and edit the thing and whatever. 
in the future, I want it to be a little bit more locked down so you can sign in. You can see these are the instances that I am a member of. This is what I have access to um, so that you don't forget the URL or whatever, just somewhere you can go and actually be reminded and, and see what the, the URL is and stuff like that. Um, but I also want you to be able to see what other members have access to this. What kind of access level do they have? So you can assign it based on the entire instance, or maybe they have access to these pieces of data, but not these pieces of data, um, stuff like that. After that, it'll be multiple media per entry. So in this like graph or tree structure that I've described, you have um, references to child nodes and also the main thing which is the text that's like the main piece of data associated with each entry um, what i want to do now is associate more pieces of data or rather an array that the authors can fill with whatever they think is relevant to that entry um, so instead of just clicking on an entry and having one big text editor Maybe now it'll be a smaller text editor, but then you'll have the option to upload an image and it'll associate it with that entry or an audio file, or maybe make another smaller bit of text, like a text box. Maybe you have this quest that's broken up into multiple stages. So you have a new text box entry for each stage of the quest, and then you can toggle them on the users so that your users can see just the first stage. And then maybe later you toggle on the second stage so they can see that stuff like that. So kind of making it more granular, I think, would increase the power of this and the usefulness of this application. Beyond that, um, there have been some competitor programs to pop up recently. Uh, I want to say Legend Keeper or something like that is one of the better, like really well-polished ones. Um, there's some differences in approaches. Uh, I believe the author of that one spends a lot of time uh i don't want to say full time but definitely they they spend more time on their project than i do on mine and it's paid off they have an excellent looking product so go check it out um but just kind of i want to get an eye out there and see what kind of features people want like why do people gravitate to that one or another one how can i make my offering uh more useful so that people actually enjoy using what I have to offer. You mentioned users as well. I was curious, have you done any outreach to try to get more people interested or like have you created any instances for other users uh, outside of the the group that we have that plays uh tabletops? Yeah, I haven't done any outreach yet because as I said, I don't feel like it's at that 1.0 stage. Uh this is definitely like pre-alpha <laughs> in my mind. Um so we'll get there. Uh, but first I want to solve the, the, uh, organizations or instances problem. Um, and then I'll probably open it up to a limited number of people, see what they have to say about it, get their feedback. And then I'll probably, uh, try to get the multiple media per entry feature done. And at that point, I'll probably open it up to like a 1.0 public release. And then you might see it places, but that's a ways off. Um, I have made instances for other people outside of our immediate group. There have been some people at work that I've played Pathfinder with, and our DM has requested actually a couple instances for he and his friend group. So that's been fun. 
Yeah, it always feels good to have people um, not only using your product, but excited to to use your product. There's no better feeling. One of the things that you bring up that I thought was pretty interesting, we've worked on projects, a couple projects together throughout our years of development. Um, but more commonly, you've been an awesome sounding board for some of the things that I work on. And one thing I feel like you've always been really good about that I've struggled with until very recently, and, and it shows here in Dungeon Pad, you're really good about building the core product and then like worrying about all the other stuff later. I feel like a lot of my personal projects in the past, I would get so focused on like building an account signup flow and building like a user management and like organization management. And then I'd get burnt out because at the end of the day, I wanted to build like dungeon pad or I wanted to build something substantial. And all I have is like a user management platform. So uh, that's an interesting thing that I thought was important to bring up, like just build your core product and then build out the other stuff. Yeah, I that's, Okay, so I have a couple of thoughts on that. The the first one is that I'm right there with you. Like, if you could see, like, you know, Matt slash workspaces, hundreds of folders there of projects that are either in, like, you know, I do have a few projects that are out there. You can go view them and use them. And, like, that's pretty cool. I'm happy about that. But that's, like, maybe 5%, if that, of the total number of projects that I have started. So most of them, I'm this, I'm right there with you. Like I don't finish them for one reason or another. Uh, you know, you, you start with like the sign up flow, or you start you're, you're setting up a new framework that you've never used before, and actually it takes a lot to to set that up, and you kind of get burnt out on it by the time you actually get to building the thing using that framework. And and it's this weird thing where like it's incremental in how far I get. So like if I if I was learning a new framework, like I don't know pick one like react uh then you know you set that up for the first time maybe you don't get around to doing it and then like a few weeks go by and you have an idea for a cool project like a new cool project because it's always that new idea that's the most enticing at any given time so you're like okay fine i'll I'll do it and i'll, I'll do react again and i learned some things last time but this time i'll get a little bit further and you know maybe the second time around you actually make the thing and it's awesome Maybe it's the third time, maybe it's the fourth time, but as long as you're making that incremental progress every time, it's not the end of the world. Obviously, finishing projects is a a wonderful thing to aim for, and I think I probably start too many projects, and I should work on finishing some that I've already started, even if they're not the most exciting thing to me right now. That's a great goal. But as long as you make that incremental progress, it's, it's not a waste of time. It's something to do because you're still learning you're still able to apply that to the next project and that's really the uh, the core thing but also on the other page like you said once you get past that once you're working on the thing itself i really try as much as possible to keep my feature list small i i don't care if i offer all of the features that a competitor is doing or if i have every idea that i've had for this thing like this could do like 20 different things even if i only implement two or three of those 20 things as long as they are high quality i'm happy you don't get first impressions twice so when a user comes to my site and tries that thing out i really want them to be blown away i want them to leave saying i'm really happy with what this did it doesn't fit my use case yet but all of the things it did it did really well so I'll come back when it does the things I want because I know it's going to do the things I care about really well. What I don't want to have is someone come to my site and say, 
This does a lot of cool things, but I don't think it does any of them really well. I'm going to go look for a different solution that does it really well because I don't trust this developer to do them really well. They may have like 20 things, but if they're, if it doesn't, if it's not high quality, then I'm going to find the higher quality solution elsewhere. That's what I don't want. Yeah. No one needs um, a solution to a problem they barely have like the, or several problems they barely have. So uh, I, I feel like um, when we were working at Carfax together, someone told me one good feature will blow away a hundred mediocre features. And I, I definitely agree with that. Like having something that instills confidence uh, and does like solves a legitimate problem very well is way better than something that like kind of helps a bunch of little things just a tiny bit. Exactly. So we talked about the next steps for your project. Uh, so I was curious, um, this podcast is aimed uh, predominantly towards developers, although we're happy to have anyone who's interested listen. Um, so I was curious, do you have any recommended guides, tutorials, uh, blog posts, anything like that for any of the tools or technology that we talked about today? Uh, a couple. So I will send over to you a list of recommended resources. I don't, I don't think there's any benefit to me saying like them out loud because hey, I can't remember them all the time, but also it's if you have that link there and you can just click on it, that'll be easier than trying to find whatever I tell you about. So there's in particular a really wonderful Socket.io cheat sheet that kind of helps someone like uh, get the grasp over like the conceptualization of how to have the clients and servers talk to each other. So I'll send that over to be linked. Um, there might be some tutorials for various uh, tech I've mentioned that I'll, I'll send over if I find particularly good ones. But for the most part, I, I don't think I have any that are super life-changing and incredible. So if you're interested, Google around. Plus, you'll have the most recent version. And if you're listening to this you know, a year or two years or three years after I looked for things, those things will have changed. So it's best to find the, the most recent ones anyways. Yeah, if you send those over, I'll be sure to put those in the show notes so all of our viewers can, our listeners, viewers, uh, whatever you are, can have a chance to peruse those as well. Um, so the last thing I have for you, and then I will let you go about your business, is uh, just a shameless plug. So if you want to like plug your Twitter, where can we follow you? Like, do you have a personal website, a mailing list? How do I, uh, how do I follow for updates on Dungeon Pad or or your work? <laughs> yeah, look look for smoke signals. Um, I I don't post publicly very often. Uh, so like my GitHub is public. So if you find if you search for Matt Balmer on GitHub, you can see uh the lack of updates that I'm doing there. But if I ever decide to post more to GitHub, then you'll be able to see it. Um, Twitter, I I have one, but I don't use it. Um. The same goes for a lot of other stuff. Like I have them, but I don't really use them. So I guess the GitHub is it for now. Cool. And I know that you, uh, if people are keeping a good eye out, they might see some posts about your products on Reddit every now and then. I know that um, a couple of them have been posted by other people. So if people peruse different subreddits, you might find something that Matt is working on uh, on Reddit. That is true. All right. Well, that is... um, all we have for uh, our first episode of Design Doc. So I just wanted to take a chance to thank you again for helping me put this on, Matt. Um, I'm sure this would be riveting if I just sat and asked these questions uh, and talked about them myself. But what really makes this a special podcast that hopefully is valuable is having um, 
people like you come in and, and just talk about uh, the trials, tribulations, and successes that they've encountered while working on something that they find um, passion in. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, I guess this is the official sign-off for the first episode of Design Doc. Woo! Congratulations. <laughs>